really don't know how you sat there and had your microphone pointing away from your mouth and didn't realize that your microphone was supposed to be pointing at your mouth, but that's... that was just me being really stupid. But that was that was pretty, that was that was pretty impressive. <laughs> peak peak dumbass. You have a lot of blonde Polak moments for somebody who's not a blonde Polak. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I need to go blonde. Maybe I think it would fit you. Anyway. I... <laughs> Welcome back to the LGB Terracast, where we talk about gays, girls, and gore. We love you, and it's because we love you that I'm going to offer a couple disclaimers immediately, pretty major ones. One is we're going to be structuring this episode a little differently, a lot more monologuing. I wanted to minimize the amount of times we interrupted each other because I know that that's been an issue. Um, It makes the audio peak. It's a whole pain in the ass. The other disclaimer is, to everybody listening... If you came here to hear Carling and I do any kind of in-depth analysis on Nightmare 4, you might not want to listen to this one, because I'm not going to talk a lot about anything that Nightmare 4 did right, and in fact, the only reason I'm not skipping over Nightmare 4 is because I think there's some value in discussing where it went horribly, horribly wrong. And while I don't particularly like Nightmare 5 either, I definitely think that we need to combine these two just to fill an episode with something that isn't a total negativity fest. I'm about to launch into the negativity fest, though, so be warned. I will put a timestamp in a pinned comment that lets you skip right to our discussion of Nightmare 5 and its commentary on parenthood and Freddy's gender and whatever the fuck we're going to talk about on that. But right now, I'm going to tell everybody why I fucking hate Nightmare 4, and it's because these characters are nothing. Alice, as a protagonist, is a nothing fucking character to me. And I know that sounds really harsh, and I don't have it out for anyone who likes Alice as a final girl, because she's a fictional character, and it's not her fucking fault that she was written with all the reactivity and charisma of the piece of toilet paper you sit on when you can't find a pad. But she was not a good final girl. Her victories came too easily. She was given special powers that were totally outside the realm of the craziness that even Dream Warriors established, and Dream Warriors established a lot of fucking crazy. And in doing so, it made it so that everything she does feels cheated, besides the fact that she just gapes like a fish at everything that happens around her. We were given a final girl that is essentially able to just throw Freddy's supernatural powers back in his face. There's no disparity. There's no power imbalance. She feels cheap. She feels lazily written. Because she is. She never had to overcome mundanity to defeat Freddy, which has thus far been the point of every fucking goddamn Nightmare on Elm Street movie before this one. The intersection of the world of the mundane with the dream world, and how much of a struggle that is for even the most lucid dreamer to navigate, this fear of not surviving the night has been completely removed as an element from this movie. It undermines the severity of Freddy as a villain, and it completely devalues Alice's victories over him in my eyes. Excuse me, I'm about to take a sip of beer because I'm gonna fucking need it. It would be a different story if the stakes were high because Alice was legitimately perceptively devastated by the risk of losing her friends. But she fucking isn't! And I don't want to attribute that to the actress, because I truly don't know if she was, you know, acting badly or if this was bad writing. But the facts are, we were given an emotionless, blank fucking slate of a character for a protagonist surrounded mostly by other emotionless, blank-fucking-slate characters as side characters. I can't even fucking talk, I'm so angry. Most of whom were completely unlikable and were only there to die as a device to drive forward the plot. This movie relied entirely, in fact, on driving the plot with kills and only kills. 
The main group of survivors is not proactive. They don't really do anything except walk around, or sit around, and kind of maybe panic when they stand around and watch one of the other kids die. They don't actively cause any forward motion. The progression of this movie's story is painfully slow, because it's left almost entirely up to Freddy to progress the plot. And Freddy's only- see, he's driving behind us in a fucking helicopter, you can hear it. <laughs> Hi, Freddy. <laughs> it's, it's left entirely up to Freddy, and Freddy's only in this movie for like fucking 10 minutes. 15, max. I swear to God he can't be in it for more than 20. I, I doubt he has more than 15 minutes of screen time. It does not seem possible. The script was rushed because of the looming threat of a screenwriting strike in Hollywood, and the result was a movie with characters who clearly were not fleshed out, they were not likable, and they were not in fact even human without serious projection onto them on part of the audience. And I mean, honestly, there were, you know, two or three characters in this movie that I actually enjoyed watching that weren't Freddy, the punk girl and her nerdy girlfriend and Kincaid, and every single goddamn one of them was just there to die. They died. They were there to die. Even Kincaid, who I fucking adore, as we've established, was killed off in the first five or ten minutes, when they could have easily just left him out of it. Just leave him the fuck alone. Because he didn't need to be fucking in there. He, they didn't need to bait us like that. You massacre a beloved character from the previous sequel just to do it, and it leaves a bad fucking taste in my mouth. I hate that Kincaid was there just to die too. Everybody in this goddamn movie, except for precious special Alice, was fucking expendable, and they felt expendable, which is a problem. It's a horrible relationship with the, to have with the characters that you're supposed to be invested in, that you're supposed to enjoy watching on screen. Nobody in Nightmare 4, and nothing thing in Nightmare 4 carries any emotional weight, and as a writer, I don't like that in a story. Ever. In any capacity. At all. On to Carling to tell you why she hates this fucking movie. Well, I don't disagree with anything Grendel's saying, because trust me, I watched this movie twice within the last year, and I disliked it even more the second time. I'm drinking. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can hear, you can tell he's mad because his Cleveland accent's coming out. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about, because I like giving people the benefit of doubt, why I think they gravitate towards Alice. For those of you who stuck with us since the pilot, you might remember my commentary on why I believe Nancy's character left such an impact on people. How Wes Craven struck a balance between presenting Alice- Fucking Alice, she's in my brain now! Presenting Nancy as an audience surrogate while still giving her a fully developed personality and arc. Ooh. My primary issue with Alice is that the movie relies too much on audience projection. Rather than working to get us to care about her the way previous Nightmare movies did with their protagonists, the writer and director assumes we will due to the nature of how she's presented. Alice is a quiet, passive girl surrounded by loud and boisterous, though not necessarily fleshed out, personalities. She is modest in both personality and wardrobe, following her friends around and seldom voicing her own opinions. Anyone familiar with the horror genre, or hell, cinema in general, can garner that she's going to be our final girl. So I guess we're supposed to care about her because she's the final girl? Maybe that's enough for some people, but after being treated to multifaceted protagonists like Nancy, Jesse, and the Dream Warriors, Alice doesn't fucking cut it for me. Minute night I'm mad too, I'm stuttering. <laughs> Nightmare 1 to 3 set the bar so high in terms of character development and giving us people to cheer for that Alice's portrayal as this simple, nearly quiet, non no, nearly silent girl, she barely talks, she feels lazily tacked on. And I do want to make it clear, I don't have anything against Lisa Wilcox, the actress who plays her. I've actually talked to her a little bit on Instagram. She was very nice to me. But 
like, they don't give her anything to do in this movie, so I can't really blame her when you give someone a nothing character. You know, it takes a really talented actor to bring that character to life, and that isn't to say she isn't good in other roles, but this one just, there was nothing. There was nothing. She couldn't was, work with this at all. It was definitely a writing thing, for sure. Yeah. I really don't think it was Lisa's fault. No. And I do understand why people latch on to Alice. I understand why she herself is protective of that character, because a lot of us have been Alice. We've been that quiet kid who prefers to stay on the sidelines and let our friends do the talking for us. I totally understand finding empowerment and watching her evolve from a follower to a badass for that reason, but it's like you already said, it's ham-fisted. She's moved from scene to scene, being fed exposition that the Nightmare audience is already well familiar with white ribe. By now. At no fault of Lisa Wilcox, it makes a good portion of Alice's scenes painful and tedious to watch because it feels like the movie is talking down to us. And I highly doubt any of us watch Nightmare on Elm Street to feel condescended, you know what I mean? And you know, if you see yourself in Alice, I completely respect that and I'm not trying to attack you as a person. I do think the concept of her character is really nice. I like the idea of an insecure kid who struggles to rise to the occasion and that how she ends up kicking the loving shit out of Freddy at the end. I especially, I especially love that it's a young girl doing it. But here's the thing. They're telling us a lot of things about Alice rather than actually showing us. How are we supposed to believe that her friends mean anything to her if we never even see her mourning their deaths? I'm sorry, but a couple shots of her looking sad here and there really, it doesn't do it. It doesn't feel real. Gren already covered why Alice doesn't work for us, so I'm not going to repeat all of that, but I am going to go off a point that he made about how Freddy's kills drove the story in this movie and what that represented for the franchise. I think Nightmare 4 is when Hollywood got its hooks in the series. We're in the late 80s now, I think this came out in 88, so New Line Cinema has realized by now that Freddy Krueger is their breadwinner. He's their golden goose, so to speak, so they turned him into a gimmick. It wasn't about scaring people anymore, or developing victims you actually cared about, but how many one-liners and elaborate special effects they could stuff into one scene. Now, don't get me wrong, Freddy's snark is a staple of his character, and I'll never complain about his kills getting nastier. He is a showman, and it's in his nature to flex how powerful he's become. But Nightmare 4 demonstrates how, if we don't care about the people he's jeering at and butchering, the experience of watching these films becomes very hollow. It feels like we're watching any other slasher movie, and Nightmare on Elm Street was supposed to be something that wasn't just a slasher, it was supposed to be something beyond that. Yeah, and like, don't get me wrong, I don't think it's bad to enjoy some parts of Nightmare 4. I think I can enjoy some parts of any movie that I find particularly awful to watch. Um, there were some cool quick. There were some cool kills in Nightmare Four. There were some very cool scenes. There were some very cool special effects, and it introduced some concepts that I don't entirely hate. The church scene, the fight between them, and you know the souls coming out of his chest. Robert and- England's acting in that fight was fucking awesome. Yeah, no, like I think that it's it's fine. It's okay. It's just. When you go into a Nightmare on Elm Street movie expecting, you know, what Nightmare on Elm Street has historically delivered, no matter how hammy and cheesy it got, and then you get Nightmare 4, it's like, well, now I really don't give a shit because my expectations were up here for, like, these characters and how much I'm supposed to care about them, because through 1 and 3, you really give a shit about them, and then I I stopped caring until, like, halfway through 6, and then... 
I think in New Nightmare I cared again, and then in Freddy vs. Jason I cared half the time again. Like, they really- New Line Cinema fucked this franchise up bad. Wes Craven was totally right to call them out on that in New Nightmare. There were some very funny comments and some- some- there was just some shit in New Nightmare that expressed how rightfully pissed off he was. Uh, do you have anything else to add about that before I go off on, like, an hour-long rant about why this movie sucks again? I just- something that's always really confused me about Nightmare 4 is that they have established by this point that Freddy is why people go to see these movies, or at least a big part of the reason why. What, why did they keep him off screen so much in the movie? Like, you're paying Robert England, you know, and I'm sure his salary is, like, through the roof at that point because that's movie number four. So when you have this actor and you're already paying him probably a lot, why, why are you keeping him off camera? I don't understand. I really don't get it. It frustrates the hell out of me. Yeah, even if Freddy's your breadwinner. Yeah, Freddy's your breadwinner. So if you're going to write a bad movie, at least have the decency to show us Freddy. Fuck's sake. Mm-hmm. Now that we've both spoken on that, though, uh, we may forever hold our peace. You don't have to agree with us. You can write as many angry comments about how we somehow supposedly attacked you for liking Alice if you want. I really don't give a shit. It's not my business. Um, but... We're on to Nightmare 5 now, which is an objectively not very good, but also objectively much better movie than this. And this is Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. It is one of those films where I could give a plot synopsis, but honestly, to me, it doesn't seem wholly necessary to do so. Walking through the quote-unquote plot, piece by piece, is redundant. It's best summarized by either scanning a Wikipedia article or just hearing me say that Freddy is trying to create a prodigy for himself, so to speak, which is a theme that, interestingly enough, continues to be a motivation for him throughout the entirety of the rest of the franchise, really, not just the movies, but the comics, uh, but especially his own daughter in Nightmare 6, Freddy's dead, and then Dylan in New Nightmare, and Jason in Freddy vs. Jason in a way, he wants to increase his power, and in doing so he is attempting to manipulate forces that are smaller and weaker than him, in this case children, and in later movies his own child, despite the fact that she's grown, and a mentally disabled man despite the fact that he's grown. I find it interesting that he stops wanting to work solo. And that his immediate persuasion is to seek out a way to spread his seed, if you catch my drift. Not in a sexual way, but he legitimately wants to corrupt others and use them as vessels for himself and to extend his own power. Which he has done before, you know, with Jesse, but never to anybody so young and so helpless as literally a fucking fetus. This is an unborn kid. There are psychosexual implications of that. Especially given that, if I'm not mistaken, this is the movie where we not only get a fuller insight into the sexually violent nature of Freddy's conception, but we explore the idea that Freddy himself may have been sexually violated as a child. Yes, we're going to talk about that a little bit. If you don't want to listen to that, that's fine. But in addition to the blatant physical and emotional abuse, the abuse Freddy suffered have made it so that his boundaries are slipping now beyond what they ever have before. He's really lowered himself to a standard that even Freddy Krueger doesn't typically drop to. Um, I think he's getting desperate. Mm-hmm. Possessing Jesse was one thing, but possessing a prepubescent child? Taking the mere concept of a child and pervading it in this way, both physically and psychologically, is exorcist levels of fucked up and unsettling. And to me, it is a blatant reflection of the trauma of Freddy Krueger's own childhood, and of the existential weight he carries, and subsequently the hurt he forces onto others due to the reason behind his existence itself. Freddy isn't 
unholy. And that's where I most strongly disagree with the message this film peddles out to us. I don't get that he was some atrocity to God. I get that he was disturbed and that the hand he was played left him in a position where he never really had a chance to be okay. I pity him in this movie. Even if this movie isn't particularly, you know, uh, good. good, and even if I'm almost definitely looking too deeply into what was almost definitely a series of cheap, bizarro scare tactics, you know, ooh, pregnant man, but this movie has a lot of symbolism regarding motherhood, fatherhood, gender, female autonomy, mental illness, trauma, sexual trauma, and how these things manifest. Mostly what I want to talk about here is Freddy and Amanda, because I love Amanda. We know I love Amanda. The relationship between them is an Ouroboros. It is a snake eating its own tail, a vicious cycle that Freddy just isn't strong enough not to repeat. Now, I don't think it's in his blood. Maybe it's not in his blood. Maybe it has nothing to do with curses or magic or religion or DNA or the devil. Whatever you interpret, whether it's, you know, more fantastical or just an excuse for cheesy special effects, or if you think it's objective canon, I think we can unanimously agree that this movie has more to do with the cycle of perversion and abuse thematically, and how these things relate to parenthood, than most surface-level viewers and reviewers will probably give it credit for. Uh, Freddy, as a person, as a living thing, Freddy is the literal consequence of Amanda Kruger's physical shaming. There is no light way to put this. He was a rape baby, plain and simple. Freddy may not be in of himself an atrocity to God, but he represents the aftermath of a violent and vile act. His birth was an atrocity to Amanda Kruger because his conception was an atrocity to Amanda Kruger. It should never have happened, not to anyone. Nobody deserves that. There are implications of jealousy on Freddy's end that are later explored in Freddy's Dead and in New Nightmare. He sees the potential for a family to be happy and normal, and he cannot fucking stand it. Which is why I think he takes Dan out of the picture right from the get-go in this movie, and why he takes Dylan's dad out of the picture in New Nightmare as immediately as he does. You would assume this is due to some desire to possess the child in the way that a father would, but interestingly enough, no. Freddy's a mother. And I will explain that. He births himself in this really strange fucking sequence wherein he absorbs Jacob or his own fetus or some pocket of souls. I'm not really fucking sure what that was supposed to be. The, the devil? Fuck it. Um, <laughs> the implication here was... I don't know, but we do It's fucking the, weird. I don't fucking know. He shoves it up his cooch. Anyway, Ugh. we see the cycle of conception and delivery carried out by Freddy, and ultimately what he's intending on producing is a copy of him and of his power. He does not choose to manifest the way the dream demons do. He is not the sperm, as they are pretty clearly physically meant to represent. No, Freddy views himself as the receptacle. He is the carrier. He is the egg. He is the mother, not the father, and the power that the dream demons instilled within him is to some effect how he has been fertilized. We covered queer coding villainy in Nightmare on Elm Street 2, but I think that we're going to revisit it here, and then if we ever talk about Freddy's nightmares, it's covered in there too. He does the same shit in like embracing femininity in a very unexpected way. Um, given his history of sexual trauma, 
Freddy viewing himself this way almost speaks to self-objectification, which then seems to extend to those around him. He cannot value human life beyond some bizarre, twisted mimicry of how people are supposed to behave. He never learned how because he doesn't even know how to value or define himself. He also babies Jacob, he coos over him, and he nurtures him, for his own selfish reasons of course, but he doesn't do stereotypically fatherly things. He assumes a very traditionally maternal role, and he adopts some very traditionally maternal behaviors, right down to both the movie and the movie's promotional material depicting Freddy as a pregnant person. Even during scenes like the force-feeding scene, Freddy cradles people's heads, he pulls them into his shoulder, and he mock comforts them, oh, poor baby, with this sweet, gooey talk. He calls people, you know, pet names, and he gucci-gucci-goos them, and he's almost like a really hormonal new parent. Knowing that he fathered a kid of his own at one point explains some of those behaviors, and I do believe that part of him sincerely loved Catherine, Catherine Kruger, his daughter, but it doesn't explain the repeated insistence of this movie on shoving preggy fucking Kruger into everybody's face. I think what makes Freddy so fascinating is that he simultaneously uses society's perception of him as a man to assert his power over him, specifically to assert his power over women, while also not necessarily rejecting masculinity, but not really conforming to it either. Freddy's power liberates him. He isn't just an abuse victim repeating the cycle, but a bisexual and possibly non-binary man who grew up in a time period and location that would not have accepted him. As a dream demon, Freddy knows he can present himself however he likes. No one's going to tell him he can't, and if his self-expression frightens and disgusts his victims, he sees that as a win-win. Though I doubt that these aspects of his character were added in for any other reason than to shock audiences, like you said, I believe queer fans should be allowed to reclaim these parts of Freddy as they see fit. Which, ironically, ties into Freddy's own declaration of power. Genderqueer author Tessa Grayton, I'm very sorry if I mispronounced their name, wrote a great piece, which we will be linking in the description, on reclaiming genderqueer monstrousness. In, in the article, uh, they, she, she uses she, her. She discusses the importance of queer monsters being active characters in their media, and that is exactly what Freddy is. He is the driving force behind the entire Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Whether you like him or hate him, this is an indisputable fact. There is something empowering about a queer character with that level of significance in his own story, which is why I can't fault anyone in my community for latching on to Freddy. Seeing as we're discussing Freddy's development at this point in time, I would also like to talk about how utterly vindictive he is in this film. Yes, I'm aware we draw a lot of attention to Freddy's sheer levels of viciousness on this podcast, but holy fuck, he keeps getting worse! Once again, he asserts his power over a woman by invading Alice's mind and womb, which unfortunately can be read as an allegory for sexual assault. The, the baby in question, Jacob, is her son. He, Freddy does the exact same thing to his own mother when he forces her to deliver his spirit a second time. Like Grendel said, it's like watching a snake eat itself. Amanda gives life to this child, and he repays her by forcing her to relive her own trauma, which in turn makes her resent him even more than she did in the first place. It's ugly and it's sad, and I think Freddy has some awareness that he's doing something wrong to his mother, because Alice herself says that he's scared of Amanda. Though, Fred, if, though we're not really sure if Freddy is scared of the power Amanda holds over him, or if he's simply ashamed to face her, that's kind of left up to interpretation. Back to Freddy's viciousness, I don't think it's a coincidence that every single person he targets in this film is a friend of Alice's. Though I'm not a fan of how her character was handled, up until Nightmare 6 she did put a major monkey wrench in his power levels and he knows that. 
So he returns the favor by putting the people closest to her through the cruelest and most excruciating deaths we've ever seen in the series thus far, especially poor Greta and Dan. I can't really do justice to these scenes by describing them out loud, so I recommend looking up the uncut versions when you get the chance. <laughs> if you think the puppet scene from 3 was bad and the cockroach scene from 4 was bad, you're in for a real treat. Like, Greta's especially, do not watch that while you're eating, and do not watch that on an empty stomach. It's it's gross. Or do if you enjoy mukbang channels, because I'm sure you'll probably fucking love it. <clears throat> um, to me, ultimately... This movie says a few things, all of which I think I've cited my thoughts and sources on throughout the episode already, and the conclusions I've sort of- is that a seagull? I hear, the fuck? I hear a squeaking. Is that your nose? That might have been my nose. What the oh, hell? Fre Freddy I'm, lives in my nose. I'm keeping that in because it was funny. I, if, I, don't, I don't know if the little squeaking is going to come through on the recording, but there was a, a gentle whistling that sounded like distant seagulls. It was almost beautiful. It was poetic in <laughs> There's um, a little clown in my nose. <laughs> Freddy Krueger is some mix of man and woman, and that's how he interprets himself. And this is how he presents himself. He may use male pronouns and masculine terminology to refer to Freddy. Well, we may. But there is always a significant part of Freddy, a very significant part of Freddy, that not only is clearly not heterosexual, if we, as we've established in our analysis of Freddy's revenge, but is not entirely cisgender either, or parasex, however you want to interpret this, be it commentary on the gender binary or the flawed concept of medicalized human sexual dimorphism or both, Freddy has subverted this, you know, this ideal. I know it was... Probably just to freak the audience out at the time, again, queer coding, but it's the 21st century, and this insinuates a lot more to me as a two-spirit person than just, the, f the funny man do a pregnant is funny and scary, and how hilarious this will be. Uh, <laughs> motherhood is, for one, thrust upon women, no matter their circumstances, and in equal parts, it is robbed from them when they want it. Women are not allowed to win. Women are not allowed to be mothers. People, in general, are not allowed to be mothers in any right because there is no apparent right way to be a mother. If you love your child too much or you don't love them enough, you know, everybody, everybody's a fucking critic. Amanda Kruger was forced to both have her child and surrender him. Alice has her child thieved from her by Freddy before he is ever born. Freddy himself subverts every expectation placed upon him and adopts his own bastardized version of a maternal role. Motherhood is fucked up. It is a viscerally distressing concept, much less a process, and I'm not even fucking old enough to truly grasp a lot of the weight this theme carries. I just know that it carries it. I feel... So bad for my mom. Every fucking time I watch this movie, I'm like, holy shit, you've been through some... Her name's Amanda, too, so I, I kind of have a, a twinge of sympathy. See, Freddy's driving behind us in a car. <laughs> Sexual trauma has more to do with extended poor behavior and poor self-image and poor treatment of others than a lot of people think it does. The fate Amanda Kruger is condemned to at the end of this movie angers me for this reason. She is resurrected only to yet again have her child forced upon her, to have Freddy forced into her, to have a man forced into her. And Freddy thusly is forced together with her too, both left in this assumed state of unwanted codependence. It is intimacy in the most grotesque and upsetting way that I think intimacy between an unconsenting mother and her unwanted son could be conceived. 
Before I get into my own points, I just want to say I think the creepiest, one of the creepiest things about the ending of five, when we jump back to Freddy and six, uh, some time has passed between five and six. We don't know what happened to Amanda. We don't know how Freddy got away from her. I'm like, I hope she's okay. Like whatever happened to her, I hope, I really hope she's okay. That is very sad and upsetting. This movie raises some interesting questions, I think, about nature and nurture. We both shared the opinion that the depiction of Freddy's evil was mishandled, that they placed too much of the blame on na the nature of his birth and his conception rather than taking the time to explain what might have actually led him to become evil, evil, whether it be untreated mental health issues, the abuse he endured as a child, or social ostracization, social ostracization, wow. ostracization. Thank you. There Based you on his identity as a bisexual and possibly non-binary man, or however you want to interpret him. I also think this film says a lot about the cycle of abuse. Not only do Freddy and Amanda take turns inflicting, on to, inflicting it onto each other, Jacob Johnson also gets involved when Freddy attempts to possess and or groom him into becoming his prodigy. Jacob is portrayed as much more mis mischievous and grotesque the longer he spends time with Freddy. Though the film tries to paint it as an infection of Freddy's evil, I see it more as a reflection of Freddy passing his trauma onto a new child. I will be talking about this again when we discuss Nightmare 6 because there are definitely parallels between the way Freddy handles Jacob and how he talks to his own daughter Maggie. And interestingly enough, the final scene implies Jacob may not be totally safe from Freddy after all. We see uh, the jumper of girls a couple feet away from him in his bassinet. So I'm wondering what kind of you know, impact Freddy left on this kid's psyche before he was even born, you know? Even if Freddy doesn't pursue him again, what kind of trauma is Jacob going to have to grow up with now? Like, good luck, Alice. Yeah. Like, your kid was basically, I don't want to say her child is doomed, but Freddy fucked him up right when his life was starting, and that's just terrible. The, the fact that Freddy's conception was as horrid as it is, and so he, in his own way, inflicted a reflection of that same way of coming into the world that was forced onto him and his mother onto Alice and Jacob. I think that that's very much intentional. Even if this movie wasn't intending to be deep, that seems a little too exact. You know, like, I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't think I'm pulling that out of nowhere. But so much of this is way over my head. And it's hard for me to talk about for reasons I really don't care to disclose to an audience of however many people actually listen to this. So I'm not going to chew it on, like, I'm not going to chew on it forever because there's a lot to unpack. Mostly sitting down and metering this episode out to myself, my primary concern was with presenting new ideas and concepts within this movie that people may not have caught during their own watch. I am going to ultimately leave it up to the audience to dissect the information we've given you. I don't care for telling people how to feel, or what to think, or what they should get out of something. I really only care to provide just enough as to allow people insight into my own personal thoughts and feelings as to what it is we're analyzing. The responsibility of conclusion and derivation, if any, is something I want to lie on your shoulders. Your own theorization and commentary is just as, if not more, important than anybody else's, including Carling's and including mine. But that is the piece of fat that I'd like to ask you guys to chew. Whether you want to consider this episode an analysis into gender or feminism or trauma, as short as this episode has been, or if you want to 
consider like it the major intersection of all of these things. I do think that it is important to return to media like the dream child with fresh eyes and a newly informed mindset. You will get a lot more out of every piece of media you consume that way. I mean, God knows I do. I watch a review before everything I pick up, even if I'm picking it up for the millionth time. Mm-hmm. You know, I would never call Nightmare 5 my favorite in this series, but I can still appreciate some of its commentary and how it impacts Freddy Krueger as a character because I feel like, you know, this film does have a lot of interesting things to say about him and I feel like we would have missed out on a lot of interesting development for him if we hadn't gotten the film. I'm not going to talk about this a lot because it's a whole other subject, but if you are interested in the themes of the dream child, I highly recommend reading the original draft of the script. It's a lot darker. It's a lot more psychological. It reads a lot more like a Stanley Kubrick film. So if you're really into this episode and you really, you have like a fix for this movie or something, I strongly suggest you check it out. It's very interesting. I honestly uh, recommend everybody read the original scripts for Dream Warriors too. That was a lot more fucked up before they, before they kind of, you know, took some of the edge off of it. I think most, um, most Nightmare on Elm Street movies have interesting conceptualizations and going back and reading them from where they started to where they went can be kind of enlightening, whether you hated or loved the movie that it ended up being. I feel the same about Jeepers Creepers 3. If I have the link, if anybody wants it, to Jeepers Creepers 3 Cathedral, the original script of it, holy fucking shit, that movie rules. It sucks my balls in the best way. We are going to be talking about Jeepers Creepers at some point, so if you if there are any fans of the series listening, keep your eye out. We're going to do that eventually. I'm very excited. Aww, we 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 love we love those movies. Yeah. Gina Davis, if you're listening, call me. Uh, no, not Brett. Gina. Did I say Gina Davis? You just is that said her Gina name? Davis. Who are what you? What the fuck is her name again? Oh, I feel so bad. Gina Phillips. I was looking I at Beetlejuice believe. stuff. I was looking at Beetlejuice <laughs> stuff earlier this morning. I'm so sorry. I love Gina Phillips. I love Gina Davis. Gina Davis and Gina Phillips. Please call Carling. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> John Breck, if you're out there. Howdy. Uh, <laughs> were you going to say something else? I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just really wanted to talk about, like, scripts. Oh, yeah. we Maybe we can do a script episode at some point. We can talk about our favorite unused scripts. Yeah. We could do a whole saga on the Freddy versus Jason I, I was gonna say, I was about to say, Freddy versus Jason is definitely not going in a favorite original scripts episode. And in fact, I think as bad as Freddy versus Jason ended up being in some elements in certain respects, and don't get me wrong, I fucking love that movie. Um, but as bad as it ended up being and as much criticism as I think it reasonably warranted, you should have seen what it could have been. Because oh <laughs> holy God. shit. Holy shit. We should also at some point talk about the treatment for Freddy versus Jason versus Ash. We'll probably do that. Um, oh, after- I have some feelings on that we one. Might, we might do that after we've done Friday the 13th and we've analyzed that franchise. Uh, we're not going to do that piece by piece. We're probably just going to talk through that in like combination episodes like this one because there is really only so many times I can say for the Friday the 13th franchise that look at how many teenage supposedly teenage girls are running around like full naked full Monty I'm like all right I don't need I don't I can make that point once or twice before it gets a little bit redundant but uh Mm -hmm. anything else or um I guess the only thing I really have left to say is that 
I still I still don't like four. Like no. there's not a lot that can be redeemed about that movie. Like if it may I know it introduced a couple people to the franchise when they were kids. I remember catching four and five on the TV when I was in high school and I was so excited to just be able to watch a Nightmare on Elm Street movie on there. You used to before we rewatched four together, that was actually you talked it up. Like you thought you th- you remembered it a lot more fondly than you view it now. And then I remember I was watching it with you and we were, I don't think we were, we, we were on a phone call. It's where the Alice voice comes from. Uh, and we were watching it in a, like a Cosme tab or something, a rabbit, before, rest in peace. Um, and it was just probably the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. So, <laughs> Jeepers Creepers 3 is pretty bad. Yes. Jeepers Creepers 3 was pretty bad, but at least I could laugh at that. And at least they showed us the fucking monster. God damn. Yeah, at least he had some screen time. And he was cute. He looked like a big chubby dad in that. I have to. We love I, have, him. I have to respect it. I have to respect the the hustle that John Breck has brought to the table because no matter how bad the script he's handed is, he always handles it. Yeah, major credit to uh three act. There are three actors I will watch bad movies for: Jonathan Breck, Robert England, and David Howard Thornton. They are always good. No, even if the movie is bad, those three are always good. I would say that I'd also watch, this isn't horror related, but I also watch any Albert Brooks movie, even if it's bad. But to be completely honest with you, there is not a bad Albert Brooks movie. Willem Dafoe, I will watch bad movies for. They're um, both great actors. Oh, boys. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's really all. And I'm glad we were able to touch on this movie or these movies with the lens that, well, I think Nightmare 5 deserves. The movie is goofy. And it may not be especially good. I will never claim that it is. I really don't like a Nightmare on Elm Street movie after three until like, again, halfway through six. And then after that, I could kind of get into New Nightmare. I thought that the, you know, lore, some parts of New Nightmare were really stupid, but I thought the actual like, the reach New Nightmare was making was not so far that I couldn't buy into the meta. It was Um, very well made. Oh, it was cool. It was cool as shit. And if they had had even more, like an even higher budget to make that movie, Holy shit. I think Mike and Jay over at We Watched a Movie said the same thing. It's been a while since I've listened to that review, but this whole idea of actual Freddy Krueger being an urban legend and, like, being controlled by some demon who's only suppressed by a certain level of public awareness. Like, I I thought that that was pretty sick. Like, the whole Tartarus and Hades thing that he had going on. I I liked that. I have to say, since we're on the topic of We Watched a Movie and we're buddies with those guys... Uh, they are doing a commentary series for A Nightmare on Elm Street, and I believe they're up... I want to say they're uploading one every day, but please don't quote me on that. But I thought they uploaded two. I think they've uploaded two already. They might upload one or uh, one or two They've more. done one and two. Yeah. It, it, they've, um... They're pretty cool guys. I mean, they're really cool guys. Not pretty cool. Uh, they're very nice people. Yeah, they're, they've, they kind of inspired us to start doing this, you know, having our monthly Patreon streams and just them giving us advice and talking us up a little bit. They, uh, they mean a lot to us. So go check them out. They're doing a commentary. They've done uh, reviews of these movies before. Sorry, I'm eyeing a lot. I, I, I've had a whole can of beer and as you can see, I get a little less coherent when that happens. Um, Don't we all? I'm kind of a lightweight. But, yeah, I uh, I wanted to analyze Nightmare 5. I, I know that it might not be good, but there's something to be said about the content and the thematic elements therein, and it's not my way to ignore that. So, sorry for this being a short episode. It might be a welcome change after the length of the last one that I thought was going to be like 45 minutes, and it wasn't. Um, thank you for tuning in to episode four of the LGBT Terrorcast. We are excited to see you for the next episode, where Hell we yeah. talk about... 
whatever the fuck was going on with Maggie Burroughs and Freddy's Dead, who is, by the way, Catherine Kruger. Spoiler alert, I don't know why you're listening to us if you haven't watched these movies. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe if you'd like future installments of this podcast shoved directly into your possibly imaginary uterus. And we love you. Stay cool.